St. Leo 360, a 360 degree overview of the St. Leo University community. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the St. Leo 360 podcast. Once again, this is your host, Greg Lindbergh. On this episode, it's a true pleasure to be joined by Frank Hernandez, who is one of our adjunct professors here at St. Leo University. Frank, welcome aboard. Thank you so much, brother. You don't know how honored and excited I am to be here. And by the way, you have an amazing voice. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Of course. <laughs> All right. So we're definitely going to dive into your, your background, your military background. I know you served for many years and you've been at St. Leo for several years now. Uh, so first off, can you just give us a, a quick bio about yourself, where you're from, kind of all that good stuff? Absolutely. I was born on the mean streets of the South Bronx, New York City. Um, I, I, I absolutely love New York City. As a native New Yorker, I can say bad things about New York, but if somebody that's not from there says it, I have an issue with that, like most New Yorkers. And again, I absolutely love New York. However, I can never go back there to live. The, wow. the price is just so ridiculous. Everything is so expensive. Yeah. But um, growing up in New York City was a wonderful experience for me. Um, coming from a Hispanic family, sadly, in New York City at that time frame in the Hispanic culture, if you graduated from high school, you were considered a success. And my mother dropped out of high school at the age of 14. She was in the ninth grade. And my father dropped out of high school at, at the age of 17. They, they were born in Puerto Rico, came over to the Bronx, and they got married at an early age, which was not uncommon then. And education just wasn't on, on my radar. It wasn't something that we aspired to. If you graduated from high school, you were considered a success. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting and sad. Yeah. Yeah. No question. So, but again, some of the experiences in New York City... I really believe that God has a purpose for me. And I tell you, because my summer um, when I was 13 was a really rough summer. May 4th um, of 1973, I wanted to be an NBA star and I tried to dunk. And the only problem is um, I'm Hispanic and we don't get that tall. So I jumped off a ladder to try to dunk and I ended up breaking my arm. Mm. So as if that wasn't enough, Two weeks after I had the cast taken off, we were taking, my friends and I were taking a ride to Coney Island. And one of the friends dared another friend to look over the top of the train as it was moving within a tunnel. The other friend said, no. And me, being the knucklehead that I am, I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Went over the top for about 10 seconds. I saw a bunch of lights and it was really exciting and beautiful. And then a steel beam hit me at the top of my head going at about 35 miles an hour. And I fell back like I was falling into the train tracks. I would have been sliced and diced and electrocuted. And I never forget this guy's name. His name is Wesley Levin. He reached out and grabbed me by my belt buckle and pulled me in. So the reality is I shouldn't be here. I could have gotten electrocuted. I would have been cut up into little pieces. Two weeks after this happened, another young man named Rocco did the same exact thing. And he fell into the train track and died. So I have to believe God had a purpose for me from even way back then. Yeah. Wow. And I'm curious, how old were you when that occurred? 13. Mm. 13. And had I been listening to my mother, I never would have been there because I shouldn't have. But you know, at 13, you think, you know, 13 to 19, 20, you think you're invincible and you own the world. Yep. 
I found out the hard way. That's not the way it is. <laughs> if not for the grace of God, I don't think I'd be here. Wow. Wow. Amazing. And, and to, to add a little bit more to that, I come from, like I said, a Hispanic culture, Puerto Rican, and my mother was the rock of our family. My father instilled the work ethic in me. He dropped out of high school, as I said, but at three o'clock in the morning, he was up going to work and he wouldn't get home till four or five in the evening. And, and reality is he'd come home to sleep to get up and do it again. And mom kept us straight. And mom was, mom was a little bit of everything for us. If, if I wasn't home on time, she would grab my New York Yankees Thurman Munson bat. Mm. And with her robe and curlers on, she'd be in the streets hunting me down. Mm. Literally. Literally. And I'll never forget the cops saw her one day walking around with a bat and they were like, lady, you okay? And she said, I'm looking for my son. And the cops were kind of like, wow, they were worried about your son now. But <laughs> this was my mother. She was the rock. She was the strength. She refused to let us go in any other direction than the straight path. And not that I was going down a bad path, but there were numerous options to go down that bad path. And she wanted to make sure that I didn't. So I, I enrolled for college after I graduated from high school, but never went to a class. Hmm. And like I said, the reality for us was you graduated from high school. You've done well. My sister started the move for education for my family. And I, she went and she got her associate's degree, which has served her extremely well in New York City. She's a registered nurse. And then after we grew up, my mother went back and got her GED and then went back and got her associate's degree and, and had a very good career as an x-ray technician at New York University Hospital. Very nice. Mm -hmm. mm. And the amazing thing is, as far as the military goes, the biggest reason that I joined the military, I, I wish I could tell you that it was from a strong desire to serve, to protect, to defend. But the reality is that my mother told me, you're not going down the wrong path. If you're not going to college, then you're going to the military. Right. So it, it was 100% really her decision. She pushed me towards it. And I joke with her and I said, you just wanted to get rid of me, mom. <laughs> <laughs> so she, we went to see a recruiter and again, at 19, you, you're just not smart enough to think of the, the real reasons you wanted to join. And we went to see a recruiter and she spoke to the recruiter. We fell in love with this guy to this day. I can remember his name was staff Sergeant Muhammad. Hmm. We invited him to the house to eat some food with us. He came over, he sold us a bill of goods that sounded absolutely wonderful. I wasn't sold. So it worked out well. We used to, to get into the military, you have to take uh, an entrance examination. You have to pass the test and you have to process through what's called the, the MEPS, military enlistment processing. And when I got to the MEPS, it was kind of funny because the first time I went through there, I got on this guy's line. At the end, I had processed through the physical. I had done everything I needed to do. And when I got to the, to the front of the line, the guy told me, I have to disqualify you. Hmm. And I was like, but why? And he said, you have a, a mild case of acne. And I was amazed. But then it dawned on me, I'm doing everything in my power to get in. They're telling me, no, it was win-win because I wasn't a hundred percent sure this is what I wanted to do. So I, I saw an opportunity. I came home and I said, I pitched it to the family like that. They turned me down. Yeah. I, I, I'm not good enough. And, but with a, with a smile on my face. Because I knew it was, it was something I can fix. So, of course, they put me on a little regimen of antibiotics. I believe it was tetracycline. 
and went back a month and a half, two months later, they allowed the medicine to take uh, its effect and got back on the same line, had the same result. Hmm. Two months later, got back on the same line, had the same result. And for me, I was so ecstatic because I'm trying so hard. They just don't want me. And the fourth time I went, I was on the same guy's line and I, I looked for this guy. I got on the same line with him. And then another guy, a military person told me, get on the other line. Right. And I was like, but why? And he said, because it's shorter and because I just told you to. And I guess that was my introduction to the military because I just told you to. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, of course I went to the other line, but I kept looking back at my line, the one I wanted to be in to yeah. get disapproved. Wow. So you really were persistent and you, you kept going at it, even though you had the rejection so many times. And I love the rejection. <laughs> I know that sounds <laughs> ridiculous, but it was out of my control because I really wasn't a hundred percent sure that this is what I wanted to do. My mother was a hundred percent sure this is what I wanted to do. <laughs> Not so much with me. And when I got to the front of this other line, the guy said, uh, you're good to go. He stamped it, checked me and said, you're done. So I looked at him and I said, how about the acne? He said, how about the acne? <laughs> and I said, but wait, he turned me down three times. He said, well, today's your lucky day. I'm not him. <laughs> and I left there numb because it became a reality. Now I have to do this. Right. And it finally sunk in. It did. But later on, later on in life, after so many years in the military, I realized that I didn't have to do it. <laughs> they don't tell you these things. You sign on the dotted line and you have up to a year to go in. But within that year, if you change your mind, you can. And there's no consequence whatsoever. I just hmm. didn't know that. Yeah. So, but the reality is that mom knew best. By far, bar none, joining the military was the best decision I ever made in my life. Wow. That's a powerful statement. And so which uh, branch did you actually enlist in? I went into the United States Air Force, which of all the branches is actually the baby of them. Um, the United States Army was the first branch that was created in 1775, just as our country was being developed and followed quickly by the Navy and then the Marines. And then the Coast Guard was created in uh, 1915. The Air Force came about in 1947. Now, the Marines were actually born from the Navy. The Air mm -hmm. Force was actually born from the Army. And the Coast Guard, I'm not 100% sure where they came from, but here's the running joke that military members have. And any Coast Guard people out there, I'm not trying to offend you, but when you say the branches, everybody says Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, they don't count the Coast Guard as one of the branches. But the reality is that they do such an important job uh, as far as drugs and as far as dealing with immigration issues. And it's a dangerous job. You're right on the waters, but they, they are definitely one of the five. And now- we just had in 1919, the Space Force created. Yeah. So, and the, within the branches, there is such a rivalry. Hmm. They give each other, they razz each other. The other branches will call the Air Force, the Chair Force. <laughs> um, they, they, they're running joke with members of the Marines and the Army, especially the infantry guys that, that are right there in the middle of a war is that a hardship tour for the Air Force guys is being deployed and not having cable TV. Wow. Yeah. And my reply is pretty much consistent. It's, I'm sorry you made a bad decision, <laughs> but, but we razz each other like that. But in the middle of all that razzing, the reality is that there is a closeness and a camaraderie, a brotherhood and a sisterhood within any branch of the military that is absolutely amazing. 
And then so just time frame wise, what uh, year did you actually enlist? I signed up on the, I can tell you the exact day, 14 May, 1979. And of course the Sergeant Muhammad was like, can you go tomorrow? And I was like, no, first I'm getting used to the idea of actually going, but then I wanted to enjoy my last summer as a civilian. So I said, let's do it after Labor Day. I see. I wanted the whole summer off. So on the 4th of September, 1979, I actually took off to basic training. Interesting. And then where did you actually go for that training? Well, before I actually left on the night of the 3rd of September, I remember, and it's, it breaks my heart even thinking about this. My father had the foresight to know that me leaving to the military was going to change our family dynamic. We would never be together again as we had been. He knew I was never going to come back. And the night before, I remember I was looking out the window, it was about 10 o'clock at night. And I was just saying, my life, I know my life is about to change drastically. Here's the thing. When you're raised in New York City, the only thing you know is New York City. I had no clue that other cities and states had different TV channels, radio stations. It was just New York City. Yeah. And my father said, are you sure you want to do this? You know, if you don't want to go, you know, don't go. I'll work it out with your mom. And you get yourself a job and I'll go half, half with you. We'll get you a new car. He didn't want me to leave because he knew it would never be the same in our family. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, again, God has a purpose for everything and God needed and wanted me to go. So I ended up going, but that just showed me the amount of love my father had for me and that he didn't want me to leave because he would miss me. And the thing is in the, in the Hispanic culture in New York city, these older guys thought they were tough. My father walked down the street with his leather coat, with the collar up, with a cigarette in his mouth. He didn't look to the left. He didn't look to the right. He was a tough guy. Mm. And I saw a soft side of him. Yeah. And that was very powerful for me. So, but the morning of the 4th of September, 1979, we went down to the MEPS and they made sure that I was still physically qualified, hadn't uh, had gotten in trouble with the law, didn't break any bones. And at 4, 4.30, we boarded a plane leaving the Bronx, New York City to head to San Antonio, Texas. And I had been out of New York City twice in my entire life, which was all of 19 years. Uh, We took a trip to Puerto Rico once and we drove to Florida once. So this was something so foreign to me. Right. Whole new world. Whole new world. And the reality is the New York City prepared me for this whole new world because If there's one thing about the military, it is so diverse. You have people from all walks of life, from from the Midwest, from farms, and from the South Bronx. And New York City was like that. It is a melting pot. So that helped me. There's a certain swagger about being from New York City. I hate to say this. People from New York think they own the world. (laughs) They don't, but they have that mentality. And everything begins and ends with New York. So... We were supposed to be in Texas by about 7.30 or 8. Something happened. Our flight was delayed. We did not arrive in San Antonio until 11.30, close to midnight. And as soon as we got off, here's my second taste of the military. The first one was because I told you so. We got off the plane and there was a drill instructor with the Smokey the Bear kind of hats. And he approached us. And first he gave us such a hard time for getting there so late that we inconvenienced him. He had to wait for us till midnight and he needed his beauty sleep and we were just screwing up his whole life. Mm. And he says, give me four across, five deep. 
we looked at each other like, what the heck did he just say? We, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you at this moment, I had wished I listened to my father <laughs> and not to my mother because I, I was like, this guy was in my face so much so that as he's yelling at me, because I just, all of us just stood there, but he picked on me because they had identified me as the leader of the group. Cause that's what they had said when we left the maps. Right. So he's in my face yelling at me so much so that his saliva was hitting me in the face <laughs> and I'm, I'm like ready to cry. <laughs> yeah. So you got this big, bad, tough kid from the South Bronx, New York, ready to ball because I was scared. So, and of course, us not knowing anything, we just knew that we knew the system, but you don't know what you don't know. Right. So we assumed, okay, well, we got here midnight. They're not going to bother us till about eight in the morning because we need our eight hours of sleep. Five o'clock in the morning, he comes in there with the top of a trash can, the lid of a trash can and a bat. Brought back memories of my mother now that I think about that. The bad story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's beating on that trash lid, waking us up, saying, brush your teeth, get dressed. We're going out for PT. We have no idea what the heck PT is. <laughs> but we're out there on um, some asphalt, doing sit-ups, push-ups, running. And here's the thing. In New York City, we know what we have. We have rats and roaches. And I accept that in Texas, they have bugs I had never heard of in my life. <laughs> so I'm laying down doing my sit-ups and there's a bug coming over about to crawl on me. And he knew this. He saw this and he's like, don't you move. You keep doing what you're doing. I'm already scared. So I had, I was terrorized by the bug and by the drill instructor, traumatized. So that was my introduction to the Air Force. But I, I, again, as I previously stated, best decision I ever made in my life. Absolutely. It would do it again in a heartbeat. Mm. Wow. All right. So let's uh, talk about, you know, just kind of timeline wise, you know, after basic training and then where did you actually go as far as where you were stationed and any deployments as well? Okay. I'm going to say first that while my mother knew these things, I didn't know these things until well after the fact. I had family members that had also joined the military. Um, I had an, her uncles, my great uncle, two of them that served during the Korean War in the army. And then her brother served in the Air Force right around the time of Vietnam. Oh, I see. So that I didn't realize it then, but I was continuing a family tradition. Um, and then I, when I speak to my children, now they're grown, of course, they're 32 and 33. But back then I was used to tell my kids, you need to be better than me. Every generation needs to improve. You need to, if I went and enlisted, you need to go in as an officer. Hmm. And my son followed in my footsteps. I enlisted and my son followed in my footsteps, went in as a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. And here's the amazing part about that. In four years, th th this is the importance of education and the military recognizes this. In four years, he was making more than it took me 26 years to make. So I I'm very proud of him for doing that. and. And he's, again, my children, they've taken what I said to heart. They've both, they're both amazing people. He got out of the military, which surprised me because he was closing in on a hundred thousand after four years and he got out. We, we come from a family of service. So he left the service in the military and now he is an Orange County Sheriff in Orange County, uh, in Orlando, Florida and on the SWAT team. Mm. But he took a 50% pay cut to do this. Wow. So we are a family of service. So. Um, I had all this that paved the way for me and I didn't even realize that until after I had joined 
And my son went in after me, my son-in-law and my brother-in-law also served in the military. Um, so anyway, so 1979, and this is the thing about the military and, and I'll touch base on this later, but they are big on making sure that they've prepared you and that you're adequately trained to do your job. So you go to basic training for basic training, you go to tech school. Tech school is to learn the actual job you're doing. And then you have another six months to a year to learn uh, to do what they call upgrade training, to get you 100% qualified to do the job. So I did all of that. I went from San Antonio, Texas to Biloxi, Mississippi. Now, if you've seen my cousin Vinny, that was me. <laughs> I don't blend <laughs> from the South Bronx, New York and Biloxi, Mississippi. I had a hard time understanding what they were saying because of the heavy Southern accents. Right. And they had to think that I was the dumbest person in the world because people would speak to me. And I'm saying, like, excuse me, can you say that again to me, please? <laughs> it, it just it was my cousin Vinny in real life. So um, from there, they sent me to a base called Loring Air Force Base, Maine. Beautiful. As a 19-year-old, I couldn't appreciate the beauty up there. It was winter there, 10 months of the year. Mm. I was eight miles from the Canadian border. When it snowed, it looked like a postcard. It was absolutely gorgeous. Right. However, below zero was the norm. Mm. And with the wind chill, 15, 20, 25 below zero, not uncommon. But I, it, it was gorgeous. Again, when I left there, and, and the amazing thing is I can tell you the day I left there. I left there. This is the impact it made on me. <laughs> I left there 17 March, 1981. I arrived to March, 1980. Left there 17 March, 1981. Had some great experiences there. Made some great friends that I'm still in touch with to this day. But a, a short story about my time there. Like a college student, when you get to your first base or any, any base, if you're living in a dormitory, one of the routines is you go get your cold cuts, your bread, your soda, your Gatorade, your drinks, whatever the case may be. At that time, I bought a milk and it was 15, 18 below zero. So a little incline trying to be the New Yorker that I was. It's a shortcut. Go down this incline. What I didn't realize is that under the snow, there was a sheet of ice. Mm. So I fell down. And again, as a New Yorker, you have to be really cool. You fall, even if you break a bone, you got to pop right back up and go about your business. Like, yeah, I, I meant to do that. My little Oscar Mayer bologna went rolling away. The milk container, because it wasn't the plastic that we have now, broke, running down my legs, freezing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I cursed at everyone I knew in this world. What the heck am I doing in Maine? I belong in the <laughs> South Bronx. <laughs> But again, it was absolutely gorgeous. And when I left there, I crossed the bridge that, that separated um, New Hampshire and Maine. And I said, I will never go back this way again. Mm. And I haven't, but my wife and I are making a trip up there because I want her to experience what I went through and the beauty. As a 19-year-old, you couldn't appreciate the, how beautiful it was. Now I can appreciate it. Yeah, so, that's nice. Yeah, it is. And um the military, at least the Air Force does, I'm not sure about the other branches, they have a program called SWAP. If you find someone that is the same career that you are and has the same skill level that you have, you can just do a trade, like a, a sports trade. The only thing is that they don't fund it for you. You have to pay for everything. Hmm. I, I, had a, I had some clothes and a TV, threw it in the trunk of the car, and I was able to swap. I found a guy in Washington, D.C. that was from... New Hampshire, wanted to be closer to home. And he felt the reverse of my cousin, Vinny. He felt out of place in Washington, D.C. 
like I felt out of place in Maine. So we swapped. So I went to Washington. The, the day that I arrived in Washington, President Reagan was shot. So that was my introduction to Washington. And, I, and Washington, D.C., amazing city. Absolutely beautiful. So much culture, so much to do there. Uh, and it was, I hate to say it, it was what I knew. It was riddled with crime. It was riddled with drugs. It was almost like coming home to a certain degree. Yeah. And I felt comfortable with that. Um, you would go up to the top of the hill and it's where St. Elizabeth's was at, where John Hinckley ultimately was um, was placed in this hospital called St. Elizabeth's Hospital. And I used to go up there and this was in the middle of the ghetto. Didn't phase me because mm. it was like being back in the Bronx. Right. So I stayed there for another 13 months. I was working my way, which is amazing. You leave New York City, join the military, and whenever you get vacation time, you go, you don't take it to travel the world. You go back home to New York City. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go figure. Um, I was trying to work my way closer to New York City. So from Washington, D.C., I swapped again. So in my first two, two and a half years, I had swapped twice. I had found somebody that was in Delaware that wanted to go to Washington. And while I liked Washington, Delaware put me an hour closer to New York. Mm. So I swapped, went to Delaware and um, my son was conceived in Delaware. As soon as we left there, again, God, God does things in a funny way sometimes after being in Delaware. And I stayed there. My first two assignments were 13 months, 13 months. I stayed in Delaware for seven years. Wow. Long time. Yeah, absolutely. No, forgive me. Forgive me. I stayed in Delaware three and a half years. My okay. next assignment was seven years. I see. After three and a half years, um, I, one day they called me up and they said, hey, Frank, some paperwork came in for you and you're being relocated. Mm. I said, where am I going? Going right back to Washington, D.C. Mm. So I went back to Washington, D.C. this time with an organization called Headquarters uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigations. And it is, if you will, the Air Force's version of the FBI. Wow. So I stayed there for seven and a half years. Amazing time. Um, great, great for my career. Really looked really beneficial. It looked really good for my career to have been because it was at a headquarters level. And that looks good. So while I was there, at, towards the end of it, I was sent to the Middle East for a six-month tour to go in support of Operation Desert Storm uh, Desert Shield. And again, just God moving me around with a purpose. You, it was a classified location. I couldn't tell my family where I was. Uh, we, we lived, slept and ate in, in somewhat underground. Uh, we were hiding the fact that we were even there. Uh, I couldn't, the only way I could try to, to give my wife an example, couldn't talk about the time zone, couldn't talk about the weather, the terrain, because the enemy was listening. And if you said enough, they would figure out where you were at. Right. That must have been a tough position to be in. Very much so and very stressful. But here's the amazing thing that the average American doesn't realize. As we sit here speaking right now, you have military members that are scattered all over the world protecting our freedoms. As we sleep, as we eat, these men and women are out there defending our nation, defending our freedom and the sacrifices that they make. I have missed, as have many other veterans. Birth of family members, the death of family members, Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, birthdays, anniversaries, and you do what you have to do for the greater good. And you understand that. Right. And it's just, it's, it's so powerful, the, the relationships that you develop while you're on a deployment, the, the brotherhood and the sisterhood 
that is, is, it just happens. And I think that has something to do with being in a position of life and death. Hmm. I think that you just, the, the bond is, it's an unbreakable thing. It's something, and I will tell you, as I speak to military members now, especially the combat veterans, when they come back from these deployments in the combat zone, wherever that is, they have such a hard time acclimating to being back here. Right. They feel, especially if they separate after that, they feel isolated, a sense of loss of identity. They, their relationships suffer. Uh, Those that suffer from PTSD, TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, sadly, traumatic TBIs uh, because of IEDs has become, IEDs have become the, the, the weapon of choice in the Middle East right now. So you have so many of our, our brave men and women that are coming back and having so many difficulties dealing with the transition. The I told you that when I first joined the military, they do such an amazing job. And, and I'm not disparaging in any way, shape or form. This is just what I'm, as I talk to combat veterans, this is what I'm hearing and, and my own experience as well. The military does an absolutely amazing job indoctrinating you, bringing you in breaking you down in basic training just to bring you back up the military way. It is absolutely amazing. They do a great job. However, when you're going out the door, you get a five to 10 day class called transition assistance program. Hmm. And those five to 10 days are supposed to prepare you to go out. They just don't. Sadly, they don't do. And I I guess I understand it. You're not going to be one of their resources. The, 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 The level of care, the level of concern for you at that point it's just not there the same way because you're leaving them. Right. But it's not fair because the sad part is since after 9-11 in the last 18, 19 years that we have had a presence in the Middle East, approximately 2,400 young men and women have passed away over there. We have an epidemic in our country of veteran suicides at the rate of 22 a day that totals. And again, I'm, I'm going to repeat this a couple of times, 8,030 veterans a year. Mm. To put that in perspective and to make sure that it's clearly understood, you have approximately 2,400 in an 18, 19 year time frame serving in a combat zone, being shot at, mortars flying overhead, IEDs, approximately 2,400 have passed away, but returning veterans, 22 a day, 8,030 a year. So yes, they came home from the war. Did the war come back with them? Right. Which is sad. And, and. Again, I'm not trying to disparage the military because it's the best thing I ever did. But the reality is that, and there has to be training conducted on this with the leadership of the military. The reality is that it's viewed as the stigma that's associated with asking for help. The military military trains you to do many things. The one thing they don't train you to do is to ask for help. Hmm. You come back from combat and you're a big, bad, tough man or tough woman. um, It's looked at as a weakness to say, hey, I need help. Something isn't right with me. And they're afraid that the leadership may lose faith in their ability to work well, to conduct the mission. So a lot of people, sadly, don't ask for the help that they need. Right. And it, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Um, we're losing way too many people. And you have politicians, you have the Department of Defense, you have the Department of Veterans Affairs, everybody saying all these things we're going to do. Let, let's, to a certain degree, I almost feel like we can't count on anybody else to take care of us. We need to take care of our own. No doubt. Yeah. And it's research has shown that peer to peer counseling, when these combat veterans are there talking to someone about their issues, if that person hasn't gone through what they're going through, they they feel that they can't connect. They can't appreciate 
their experiences. As I speak to these combat veterans, I'm hearing more and more, more and more of them saying, when I came back, I just didn't feel like I belonged. Hmm. I had a hard time with relationships. And I would ask, okay, did you have a hard time in relationships with everyone? No, just the people that hadn't served. So I said, okay, so you felt good talking to other veterans. Yes. Yes, they did. But they feel as if they're just uh, an outcast and people don't understand them. And sometimes veterans have these, the hardship of being misunderstood. Most civilians feel that anybody that's been to a combat zone suffers from PTSD. Some do. Absolutely. Um, and, and if you suffer from PTSD and it's not treated, you're four times more likely to commit suicide. Hmm. So uh, again, I, I'm not trying to say anything bad about any organization. I'm just saying we need to take better care of those that have served for our nation. Absolutely. Those numbers really speak for themselves. It's just it's such a sad thing, such a huge epidemic. And I feel like it's, it's getting you know, worse or it's, it's increasing as time goes on. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it, it just, it, it literally, I have cried because as I speak to our veterans, I have had veterans, some guys uh, 25, 27, 28 years old. And in talking to them, I ask them, how many combat buddies have you lost? Two weeks ago, a veteran told me that in the last year, he has lost eight to suicide. That's just powerful. Like I said, they left the war, but to a certain degree, the war has followed them home mentally. Right. Uh, it's as if a part of them remained over there. They didn't come back home. Yeah. And we need to do something about that. No doubt. I am curious about your, you know, your experience, uh, both, you know, while in the military and then coming out, did you experience any challenges yourself? It, it's funny you ask that because um, I'm an old man now. I freely accept that. When I was younger, I thought I was tougher. Again, the New York mentality can't help it. I am doing some research. And as I'm talking to these soldiers, things that I had put aside that I didn't want to face are slapping me in the face as I'm watching it and I'm hearing their stories in them, I have the same exact problems. Really? Just didn't want to deal with them. Angry, yeah. irritable, um, trying to my best to smile, be happy with everything. But relationships suffered. I, I went through a divorce, as many veterans that returned back do. Hmm. And yes, I, I did have the hardships, but I didn't want to admit it. But I, I, you, I can't hide from it anymore. They're right there. They're slapping me in the face and I need to do something about it. Right. Hey, I appreciate your honesty. No, I appreciate you asking these questions and I appreciate the opportunity to be here to tell this story. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of wrap up as far as your, you know, your Air Force career, is there anything that really has stuck with you, you know, from a positive standpoint that really made an impression on you? Any experiences? Everyone that I came across in my Air Force career has made a positive impression on me because these are the bravest, most courageous people that you will ever meet. You're talking about kids at 17. And yes, they're kids at 17 deploying to a combat zone. Wow. You have 17 year olds um, back here in the United States playing video games. You have 17, 18 year olds being shot at. Right. So everyone I've ever encountered, honestly, has been positive. The, the military gives you some amazing opportunities. Um, they, they, they're willing to pay for your education. They, they, they'll pay $250 a credit hour for you to go to college. And the post 9-11 GI Bill, just a short story about that. When I was in, there was a program called the Veterans Education Assistance Program. It wasn't one of the better programs they had. So you contributed money and they would match it and give, give you, I believe it was two to one for whatever you'd contributed. 
I contributed for for a short time, and then everybody, you know, as I spoke to the people in education, they said that the program might go away, so I stopped contributing. So when I got out, there was no opportunity for me to go back to school. Mm. And again, by the grace of God, and it's a terrible thing that it happened, but after the 9-11 attacks, they came out with a program called the Post-9-11 GI Bill. And if you served for at least three years after 9-11, the 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 VA would pay for a hundred percent of your education, tuition, books, and you receive a stipend. Right. To go to school, they they were paying me sixteen hundred dollars and change to go to school to be a student. Hmm. So for for the anybody that's thinking about going to the military, you get an opportunity to travel. They pay your education. Oh, and with that post nine eleven GI Bill, now they've added a clause to it that if you complete your education while you're in, when you get out, you can transfer that. Post 9-11 GI Bill to your wife, husband, or children, they can go to college. Wow. Right. So again, I'm not trying to make it seem like it's a negative experience. It was the best experience I ever had. And the amazing thing is that while I tell you these stories of these combat veterans, and I will tell you my own story that, yeah, it was a difficult transition. A part of me isn't the same. You don't, you're not the same person you were when you left and when you come home. However, the most amazing thing about it is that as I'm speaking to these combat veterans and in my own life, at the end, I will ask them, if you had to do it all over again, would you? Every single one has said yes. Wow. So was it difficult? Absolutely. Uh, have we lost m- numerous brothers and sisters? Absolutely. But when I went into basic training, like I said, I didn't have that. I didn't have the, the exact understanding of what I was getting into. 26 years later, to be able to give back to your country who has given so much to me and my family, to have had the opportunities that I've had because of my time in the military, I was able to finish my undergraduate degree, my master's degree, and now I am three months from finishing my doctoral degree. That is because of the decision that my mother made for me 40 years ago. Right. So it, it, it wasn't all negative. Like anything else in life, there's good and there's bad. Absolutely. Yeah. But to have had the opportunity to serve our country, no matter what we've all gone through, everybody says the same answer. I would absolutely do it again. It's a calling. And many people don't know this, but it is between half a percent and three quarters of a percent of the American population that serves in the military at any given time. Less than one percent of the American population serves. Mm. So that's a very special group of people right there. No question. Yeah. Very well said. Thank you. So let's uh, transition to, you know, getting into education and teaching. And I know you've been at uh, St. Leo now, I believe, for about five years. Exactly. Five, six years I've been here. Yeah. Talk to me about how you came to St. Leo. What uh, kind of inspired you to take on a teaching role here and then your experience here? Uh, Again, another funny story, because God has a sense of humor. I came here for all the wrong reasons. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. When that post 9-11 GI Bill came about, I said, okay, uh, you're going to pay me to go to school. I'd be a fool not to take advantage of this opportunity. <laughs> I looked at the rate that they would pay for Orlando because I actually lived closer to Orlando. And I looked at the rate they would pay for tech for Tampa because St. Leo is on the Tampa side. Right. And the Tampa side was actually $300 more a month. So that was my incentive to come to St. Leo. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but that's the honest to God's truth. Yeah. Yeah. Again. But I will tell you this. The very first time that I turned down to this campus, I turned to my wife and the very first thing you see when you turn on the campus is the, the tower with the clock and the cross. I am a minister in the Catholic church and 
I turned to my wife and I said, I can't tell you why, but I just feel St. Leo University is going to play a big role in our lives. Hmm. Subsequent to that, I have become an adjunct professor here. My wife is an adjunct professor here. My daughter is an adjunct professor here. And my son, the Orange County Sheriff, was a doctoral student here studying for his criminal justice degree. So all of us, and, and I'm recruiting my grandchildren now <laughs> to come here. <laughs> nice, um, yeah. But the funny part of all of this, when I was a student, because I got my master's degree here, and I had a professor of, strate- of a strategic management course. It was the capstone course, and his name was Dr. Nastansky. We were doing a presentation on a company that was doing well and then not so much. So we were doing it on Nintendo. And I asked the group, hey, how would you guys like to get dressed up like Mario and Luigi and the princess? And they looked at me, kind of your reaction. They were kind of like, no, (laughs) they thought I was a fool. And maybe I was, but I said, do you mind if I do? They said, no. I went and brought a Mario costume at Party City and I did my presentation. I came in, everybody laughed at me, of course. And I said, hello, my name's Mario. (laughs) And I went into the whole spiel and I did the presentation like that. After that, Dr. Nastansky, who was the dean of the College of Business, asked me, you know, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm not sure. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. (laughs) And he said, why don't you come by the office on Monday? I was like, sure. In the back of my mind, I was like, you think he's going to ask you to maybe teach? (laughs) But in the front of my mind, I was like, no, you're that kid from the South Bronx. This was never on your radar. You've already overachieved. And when I went to his office, we sat there for 30 minutes, which I was impressed with the fact he was willing to give me 30 minutes of his time because he was a very busy man. And at the end, because he was a strategic management guy, at the end, he said, Frank, have you considered teaching? And I'm not going to lie. I tried to play it cool. The New Yorker in me, I keep going back to New York because that's what I know. The New Yorker in me was acting real cool. But on the inside, I was doing a serious happy dance. (laughs) (laughs) I was so excited. He told me, you did something that is critical. You were entertaining. You had my attention. And that's what's the critical part. You have to get the attention of the students and hold that attention. You did that throughout your whole presentation. But yet you got all the points across. Mm. And I walked out. I said, yeah, absolutely. I would consider that. I walked out, called my wife, told her. And the next day I got a phone call from uh, Dr. Lauder, set me up with an interview and they said, all you got to do is get certified to teach now. And that was five, six years ago. And I still, (laughs) being the fool that I am on Halloween, I still, I tell the class, if you come in with a costume, the person that has the best costume, I'll invite somebody else in here to judge. You get a homework pass. (laughs) And I have come in as the Stave Puff Marshmallow guy from Ghostbusters. Uh, whatever he was with a white costume with an inflatable, uh, with the little motor going inside. And I have taught like that. (laughs) I was evaluated to, on a day that I was being evaluated, it was Halloween and I was wearing my stay puff guy. And I told the evaluator, listen, I'm sorry, but this was scheduled before you were scheduled. (laughs) And she said, please do it. But I'm all about making a connection with my students. Right. And to give you an idea of the level of connection, I have officiated two of my students' weddings in October, October 20th, 2020. I'm doing another student's weddings, another one of their weddings. And a student of mine, I tell them, we're family. St. Leo is a family. So Mm -hmm. in the future, if you have children, if you get married, if you graduate from another school, you invite me and I'm there. And I had a a student invite me to go out to Houston, Texas for his graduation from law school. He reached back to me and he said, you said that. And I just wanted to see if you would have any interest. That night, my wife and I rented a car, drove out to Houston, 
all night Thursday night. Friday, we were at his graduation, stayed in Texas Saturday, Sunday morning, drove back. If you think enough of me to invite me to something that important in your life, I'd be a fool not to be there. Right. So St. Leo University has given me such a tremendous opportunity. Um, I served as the director, the interim director of military affairs this time last year, the spring semester of 19. And again, I'm full of funny stories, or at least I think they're funny. Maybe they're not. (laughs) Last April, the student government nominated my wife and I as for up for the award of professor of the year. So my wife was my competitor. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the reality of it. The students, I see them as my customers. Mm -hmm. I'm here to give them a good experience to teach them, teach them how to make connections, to teach them what I'm supposed to teach them. But this award came from the students. I ended up winning the award. And it was kind of funny because just the other day we were in one of our cars and my wife said, "Um, you still have the invitation to the professor of the year award. Um, Why don't you, why don't you have mine is up in a plaque. I I put in a frame, I mean, up in my office. And I looked at her without thinking. I said, I don't put the invitation in because I won the plaque. I laugh now, but she didn't think it was that funny. <laughs> but I'm just, I say this because I tell you, this is what St. Leo has given to me. This is what the military has given to me. I would not have the education that I have. Like I said, I'm three months from completing a doctoral degree. If it wasn't for the military, I wouldn't have that. Um, the VA and the military and St. Leo University, best things ever happened to me in my life. When I got out of the military, when I got to basic training, you, you, while I went in immature, you come out with a sense of purpose. You have meaning in your life. When I left the military and a lot of ex- veterans experienced this, you lose that sense of purpose and your identity. St. Leo gave me that sense of purpose and my identity back again. And for that, I'll forever be grateful. Yeah, that's very well said. Very well put. And I, I definitely have to say you're, you know, like you mentioned, using the costumes and then dressing up and it's, I mean, your energy is infectious and I can only imagine how the students react to that and respond and how, how much of a positive impact that has on them. You have no idea. You have no idea how much that means to me. Now I will tell you, I have had other people on the campus. Uh, this last Halloween, I was the, uh, a dinosaur <laughs> and in the middle of the, of, um, in the, in the middle of a lesson, the batteries died. <laughs> oh, so the, the costume just flopped over. Uh, thank God I had extra batteries. But I've seen other people on campus look at me like, what the heck is wrong with that guy? <laughs> and the thing is, I'm OK with that yeah. because I'm here for the students. Right. And that will never be lost on me. I, I appreciate if, if it's not for them, there's no reason for me to even be here. And people like yourself and Nate, it's just we are a family here in St. Leon. And I'm honored to even be a part of this family. It's a blessing from God. Absolutely. I can second that for sure. All right. Well, Frank, I I really appreciate your time and you gave some tremendous insight on your military experience and obviously your teaching career here. And can't thank you enough for joining us here on the St. Leo 360 podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. And just so you know, I see you on campus. I'm not going to call you Greg because of that smoothness of your voice. You are Rico Suave. (laughs) Thanks again, Nate. Thanks again, Rico. I appreciate you guys and God bless. Thank you, Frank. To hear more episodes of the St. Leo 360 podcast, visit stleo.edu forward slash podcast. To learn more about St. Leo's programs and services, call 877-622-2009 or visit stleo.edu.